Hello, friends, enemies, gather around. It's time for Perhaps It's You. It's your favorite unofficial Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast. I think we all know that's true. We're so unofficial. Very. Keep your cease and desist letters to yourselves, Unsolved (laughs) Mysteries. Yeah. We're we're unofficial. This is, we don't represent Unsolved Mysteries. We never even knew Robert Stack. No, no. I never met him once. Nope never not a single time i was watching this episode um and travis walked into the room and asks me a very normal question that a husband would ask a wife which is where is robert stack buried sure yeah (laughs) i actually didn't know i knew it wasn't hollywood forever cemetery i was able to say that but i did have to google it i didn't and then i felt like how could I even claim to have an Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast if I don't know where Robert's deck is buried? I had to look it up on Find a Grave. Where is he buried? Now, of course you're going to ask me that. It's like West Lawn Cemetery or oh, sure, something yeah. in mm-hmm. LA. Yeah, that's a big one. Yep. I suppose I should go visit him. Say hi. Say hello. I'd be like, hey, what's up? He's interred. He's cremated. I don't know if that's if he's in a mausoleum or in the ground. Mm-hmm. I didn't look that far into it. I do feel like I should pay my, you know, part of having an Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast is I should probably go pay my respects, you know? We probably should. Just, uh, yeah, wish him the best chilling in the afterlife. Absolutely. Do you I'm think sure he's he... on a yacht. Maybe he's yeah. playing tennis. <laughs> I was going to say, he probably never wears a trench coat again. He's like, I'm done with that. Oh, no, he's in that, like, that tennis uniform with the shorts. You know, the one. Everyone says us a picture. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just an eternal sunny tennis game for him. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I'm tired. Save. Uh, <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> it's possible that, you know, there should have been a clue in the fact that we refer to spooky season as busy season. Yes. And I think maybe that's a like sign. Oh, like, don't do that pace yourself slow but the problem is is we live our lives as if halloween is year-round but the rest of the world doesn't and so all of these fun spooky events happen in october it's a lot to cram in in one month i know but now i'm so tired and i'm no offense to samantha but i like can't socialize anymore (laughs) my poor introvert heart is just like dead we have one more event, and it's a regularly scheduled event. We have a book club meeting this afternoon, and then my social calendar just drops <laughs> off, and I, I can't wait to just hibernate for the month of November. I know, I, I know. I'm honestly so. I have literally, I wrote "do nothing" across the first weekend of November in my planner, and I like that's what I'm so excited about. We've been so busy. Should we tell our listeners what we've been up to? I the last last we left off, we had gone to Spooky Train Day, which people <laughs> love. I, spooky Train Day, I, I I love it. Your listeners get us. That's all I have I to know. say. I was trying to explain it the other night, some of my brother's friends, and I'm sure they were just like, "What?" <laughs> and then the next day, I was wearing the sweatshirt, and I was like, "Yeah, from Spooky Train Day." And they were clearly like, "Okay," but no. <laughs> But our listeners were keyed in to why that was such a good time. And I really appreciate it. Um, So another thing we did is we went out to the Thayer Hotel in Annandale, 
Minnesota. Approximately for... five hours away from my <laughs> home. Oh my god, it was so uh, far away. Um, for a ghost tour, and uh, I have a lot of thoughts about this experience. <laughs> it was very fun. <laughs> But I have never been on a ghost tour where the person giving the tour had had so many paranormal experiences. Oh my god. This must be the most haunted place in America, <laughs> possibly the world. Um it was a unique experience. Um the tour okay. was held by a team called Search for Spirits. Okay, I was trying to remember their name the other day when I was telling someone about this and i could not remember it all i remembered was the guy's shirt with the cross on it but yeah, i knew you had gotten a, uh, a business i card. got a business card because it's really it's really something so the 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 tea and spirits is the cross and they didn't make a huge deal about it but sort of the mission of their organization is not just to find ghosts and prove there are ghosts which they seem to think they've proven like a million times over but to like help people find Jesus and cross over into heaven, or help is that, help is spirits that, find Jesus and cross have, over into I heaven. I have questions about that last part. I have I, serious questions. We didn't ask any questions on the tour about this specifically. I guess it would have seemed um, rude. Also, this guy was very animated. I don't. I've never sure what... met someone quite like this man. I'm not quite sure what the right word is. I mean, he he was he. I think he totally believed everything that he was saying. I don't know that I <laughs> believe what he was saying, but those are two different things. I've never I've never come across a ghost hunting organization quite like this one. Not that I've interacted no. with a lot of them, but you know, you watch shows, right? Ghost adventures, ghost hunters. We've taken et cetera. A we've got many ghost Yeah. Certainly in the area, we've gone on a handful of tours. We went on one in Chicago. I went on one in New Orleans and also in Los Angeles. None of them were anything like this experience because every part, this is not a large hotel, folks. This was a, a hotel eight rooms built, you know, turn of the century to be a, a stop on the railroad, but people don't, you know, use that. It's not a, a passenger rail line anymore. Um, every room, every step of this hotel. So haunted. So he had stories about like 12 ghosts that he had talked to, that other people had seen. They had literal recordings from ghost boxes they could play of things that had happened in different rooms. Clearest had... EVPs I've ever heard. Very clear. I mean, clear. <laughs> like someone is in the room speaking not like oh you kind of have to like grasp it through the fuzzy white noise and and you think you heard something and usually they can tell you what is being said and then you hear it because you've been you've been told it this was like speak like someone speaking <laughs> um there was a story that they found a rosary on the floor of the hotel well he did and then his his teammate was like that's weird I have a rosary like that in my bag. And then they like went back to his room and it had been removed from his suitcase by a ghost and left on the floor for some reason. Just literally every step of this hotel. 
had like yeah like 12 ghosts hanging out um there was a there was a room where there was a ghost under the bed that would grab your ankles there was ghosts like knocking over stuff in the kitchen there were ghosts there was supposedly okay i am skeptical of many things but one is that at this room at this hotel that was for railway passengers in the middle of nowhere there was one room frequented by ladies of the evening only one okay <laughs> um it was as if they had reserved a room just for yeah purpose. they're like this is a little hard to believe this is the sex work room and we're only gonna have sex for money in here and the there was apparently um ghost recordings that were too dirty for him to play for us which i feel like is because the group was mostly women so i feel like that was a little sexist that he wouldn't play us the ghosts being like i don't even know what i'm gonna lick your dick i have no idea and now i'll never know i wanted to hear those recordings but again it felt a little rude to like also he probably didn't have them at hand maybe he did i don't know but okay this i described him later as like an eloquent hobo i can't quite he had like a long beard I don't know. He had he a kept very seeing things out of the corner of his eye and jumping dirt like and they were just <laughs> people. Startled. They were just people in the <laughs> hotel. Oh, there are other people walking around in the hotel. This ho- the hotel had it all decorated like for Halloween, which was very cool. And people who were there for like dinner were coming up to see the decorations or use the bathroom. There's only like one bathroom and it was on the second floor. Um so yeah, people would walk behind him and he would just be like, Oh, a ghost. <laughs> Yeah, I think this guy interprets basically everything as a ghost. And he said that when he's sleeping, he has to put in earplugs because otherwise spirits are going to constantly communicate with him. So um, as you may know, we're a big fan of Dangerous Linda, who is a local um, ghost guide. She does tours in Minneapolis and St. Paul and um, Stillwater in the area and she had once told us a story about a ghost following her home from a haunted location and that really freaking her out and um so the question that i asked him was was if that had ever happened to him i thought that was a very like you know innocuous but interesting question right it wasn't a i don't believe anything you're saying question (laughs) It was, yo, have you ever had this? She referred to it as like a hitchhiker ghost. Has a ghost ever like latched onto you and followed you home? Listeners, I want you to guess how many times this man claimed this has happened to him. (laughs) I want you possibly to write down a number. You could just think of it in your mind. How many times this man has had a ghost follow him home from a haunted location? Okay, do you have it? Is it 50 to 60 times <laughs> a year? And he's been doing this for a decade. So once a week, once a week, folks, more than once a week, a ghost follows him home from a hunt, sometimes through his telephone. He'll, they'll like jump through the telephone if he's talking to like someone. I did not really understand. I'm not sure he realizes that like, is he using a landline? It's like literally following the wire. I was so confused. It but 
make any sense. But my, I would love to see a photo of my face as I register that he just said <laughs> 50 to 60 times. Because I was expecting him to be like, oh, sure, like once or twice, you know. But 50 to 60 times a year. I think I audibly gasped and said, that's a lot. <laughs> I couldn't control it because at this point in the tour, he had already told, he said he was going to say a prayer for us at the end. He had already told us about their mission. Yeah. And I just kept feeling Liz's eyes on me and trying not to look look over at you the entire tour. I promised that we were being very polite. We were really going along with the thing and having a good time and being like, oh, I get a bad feeling in this room or, you know, whatever. I legitimately did feel something in my head in that one room where he asked if anyone had a feeling and I had the right answer. Yeah. People feel tingling in their head. That's exactly what I was feeling. I feel like it has a little bit more to do with um, on level floors. And I feel like Brian from Paranormal Home Inspectors could debunk a lot of these things is my point. Like, I think some some of the rooms are cat. Is there a hotel cat in this place? (laughs) I feel like some of the rooms have bad vibes because the floor suddenly goes down. And also they're very small. And the the wallpaper is like claustrophobic feeling. (laughs) Every room is very claustrophobic. Dim lighting. Just very loud patterns, and which I'm not against. It's I'm sure just, you can hear everything in that hotel. If yeah. someone creaks a floorboard two floors above you, I'm sure you can hear it. It's a you know, it's an old building. It's been remodeled a few different times. Um, but yeah, I so do. We were very respectful. Disp- I do too. I want to. I want to stay in that honeymoon suite where the, there's a hot tub in the room that's like bigger. Like it takes up most of the room. <laughs> most of that room is a hot tub, and it's just pretty much the size of the bed. Um, I meant the, it. The story about that room was supposedly couples were always fighting when they stayed in that room because of I don't know bad vibes. So he came in and blessed it, and now they don't fight anymore. People are having. Sweet, sweet, sexy time in that tub now. Yeah. Here's my question about the mission of their organization, which I did not ask because, again, we were trying to be very respectful. It, he told one, I th- by my count, maybe two, but definitely one, no more than two, stories about actually crossing a ghost over. Yeah. It was like they were downstairs in the kitchen and they sensed, folks, I... This is his. This is what he said. Okay, there was a mom and like two children from Egypt. Uh huh. Uh huh. For some reason, we're in the Thayer Hotel in Annandale, Minnesota. No explanation given for why that would be. But he was not comfortable with the idea of children being stuck here on Earth and wanted to pass them over to, I guess, heaven. And he asked the manager of the hotel if he could do this. And so he did. He passed them over. Here's my question. If you believe in the Christian version of heaven, which is a great paradise where we all want to be, are you not passing every ghost over? Are you allowing some ghosts to stay trapped on Earth? And if you are, what is the motivation for doing that? Is it to keep this haunt, like tourists coming to this haunted hotel to see ghosts? Are you, and then it, if that's the case, are you keeping spirits trapped on earth, keeping them from heaven, from paradise for like a prophet? Or yeah. here's my other idea. I want to give this man the benefit of the doubt. Are there just so many fucking ghosts that he passes all these ghosts over and then they just <laughs> re- refills? <laughs> like it's just like water just flowing into this place. 
It did seem like there was an awful lot of ghosts in this one location. He seemed particularly concerned about children being stuck on this plane and not moving on to heaven. So I think that's kind of why he focused on that set of spirits. Very hilarious that he needed permission from management to pass a ghost over. Yeah, that's, I can't explain that. Would they even know that that happened? He clearly is working very closely with the management of that hotel. um, Because they're there a lot. And sometimes they're the only, they'll do like lockdowns to do like paranormal investigations where they're the only people. And they only have guests, we should have said this, they only have guests stay the night on the weekends. Which I guess is why this event had to happen on a Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) But... Yeah, yeah. So that's why we got to go in all the rooms and stuff, which was very cool. And um, Samantha didn't get to enjoy it, but actually the food there is amazing. So shout out to the Thayer Hotel. I guess shout out to Search for Spirits. (laughs) You're an interesting organization. It was a unique experience. Um, his business card is on one side. It says search for spirits and it's about the ghost hunting thing. And then you flip it over and it says search for heaven. And then it's some okay. religious thing. It's it's kind of unbelievable to me. Not I all guess ghosts it, can search for heaven, though. We gotta keep a few. Gotta keep, keep a few in the gotta hotel. Keep, why, else, why else would we be driving out to Annandale, Minnesota if there weren't some ghosts? <laughs> Uh, and, well, that hot tub though. There's also a room with a heart-shaped tub. I want to stay in that one, though. That's in the room where there's supposedly a ghost under the bed that will grab your feet. I'm willing to risk it. I'm not staying in that room. Absolutely I, not. I don't think I'll let my foot dangle over the side of the bed, childhood style, because the monster might grab it. But um, I do want to stay in that room. I really like that room. I'll stay in the honeymoon suite. Samantha will my, be in- by myself. I, I that that tub is mine and mine alone. I'm gonna. <laughs> Stay in the tub all weekend. Okay, comment if Samantha and I should record an episode from the Thayer Hotel and see if we can get some ghosts on the line, since there's so many. I'm going to be so scared. Like, I don't even fucking believe in this, and I would be <laughs> jumping out of my skin. Um, Yeah, I think we should do it. Mostly for the tubs, but... Well, that's my main motivation. Also, I I, I didn't get to eat a meal there. I had to leave and drive <laughs> home. Just go to bed. <laughs> get up it's, for work the next day. It was very good. Um, the other... What else have we done? We went to the zoo for the jack-o'-lantern thing that we do. The jack-o'-lantern spectacular at the Minnesota Zoo. Love this event. We've very gone cool. like four or five times now. Very cool. Thousands of jack-o'-lanterns. They're like in the trees. They're in these really elaborate displays. This year, my favorite part was there was, then the reason I'm bringing this up, is there was a UFO part that had a UFO with jack-o'-lanterns in it. There was Multiple two of them. Multiple UFOs, actually. yes. And they were like jack-o'-lanterns inside. <laughs> flashing lights to each other while the X-Files theme played. It was very cool. This year was library themed. My favorite theme so far, I think. It was a little light on books. I guess that's my only complaint yeah. for a library-themed uh, display. It was, it was a little light on books, but... We were there with our resident librarian, Megan, and she was pleased that they were pointing out that the library has more than books. And I was like, yeah, but it does have books, though. <laughs> it doesn't not have books. Like, yes, it has board games and video games and movies and music and all this, but it does... 
libraries do tend to have books also um, hilariously and i guess it's a visual medium whatever but like a lot a lot of the books that were featured in these jack-o'-lanterns also had like either a movie or tv version and so they depicted the like movie version on right the right right yeah which okay like that's the visual version of like whatever i, I get it but i was also kind of like mm. <laughs> light on books is all i'm saying <laughs> But it's always very fun, um, extremely wholesome activity that we like to do to have go wander through the zoo and just so many jack lanterns. Oh, absolutely. You get a hot cider, you walk uh, through the music playing. It is really very fun. Though there was a band that was playing um music that doesn't have any words. I don't know what the term for that is. It was what- like a jazz band. They were playing it was like slow jazz. We walked by and we were like, oh we got baby making music playing at this. Which is weird because this is kind of like I would say like a family event. It's more geared towards like families. And so there's a lot of kids and like costumes there. And parents have like brought them to the band area to like dance but it's just like slow jazz and so we're walking by and i was like play monster mash i mean really my experience and i don't know last year we did end up going because we just couldn't find a time we ended up going like at the last one which was after halloween but do my- not recommend do no it's there's yes they it's, had it's really, winding down they had really given up by then and i get it you're tired i'm sure half the pumpkins were rotten but man but oh, my man. experience with music at this event is usually they just play the monster mash over and over again i'm yeah, not mad should. at it but as you should I, I i mean having live music is cool and minnesota is definitely very into live music but i don't get this band <laughs> choice it was weird. <laughs> they should have had that band from the train museum, the old guys with their oh, yeah. teddy bears. Could have done I could have done another jig. Yeah. Someone on Instagram asked for a video of me doing the jig, and I was like, Samantha tried to take it and I threatened her life. So <laughs> you'll never see that. You'll never see that yeah, jig. You never will. Uh another thing we did is we went to Candlelight Halloween Classics. Which this is definitely fun. me buying tickets based on some targeted Facebook advertising. We got these tickets back in like July. Yeah. <laughs> because I saw this and I went, yes, I am that bitch. We're going. And we didn't even really know what it was. Honestly. I didn't even know what I was like, is this live music? What is this? As we were walking to it. Yeah. Samantha's like, I don't really care for music what are you dragging me to uh it was a string quartet in the saint paul athletics center which is a very fancy building it was up on the third floor um it sort of felt like they had just sort of broken into the building and decided it's like not for concerts they just like decided like i think people have weddings there yeah yeah. it's very beautiful but Um, this I assumed it was the St. Paul Athletic Club putting on the event, but it was no, not. It no. was this like app, yeah, I guess this like event app thing called Fever. Never heard of it. Um, it was, they it must have just, just rented this venue and then like got this local quartet to play, and they're making a profit somehow off of all that. But it was fun. It was just a scheme to get us to download the app, really, which I, of course, immediately deleted when after we left. So I don't know that that's really worth their while. But um, it was very elegant, sort of. 
I felt very sophisticated that we went and we saw a string well, I think it was elegant, but the, all of the the fake candles everywhere. And... <laughs> there was a there shit was people ton. there in gowns. That's I was true. like, holy shit. That's true. There were people there, like, you know, like you might expect people to go to like the opera. Um, I mean, Samantha, well, you wore a skirt. It's not I like did. you didn't. You said you found one, I assume, by the side of the road. <laughs> Liz and I were discussing what to wear because, again, we really didn't know what this even was. And Liz was telling me to wear the spooky train museum sweatshirt. <laughs> glad I didn't do that. Uh, so then I responded that I found a skirt, which, yeah, I found it in the back of my closet. I don't wear a lot of skirts. <laughs> no, it was by the side of the road. You brushed it off. You're like, this is good. Good enough. No, you looked very nice. I'm totally kidding. Um, so it was just, you know, it was like things for movies. Um, but they did a great job. And, it was fun. Um, yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. It was it was a nice elegant an elegant evening. Yes, the entire time after we left, we were walking to a restaurant that we weren't able to get a table at, and then walked back. We were we just kept repeating how we are elegant sophisticates now. We're elegant, which actually it turns out Arden was dining in that restaurant. I saw that in. <laughs> she had our table. Actually, I think she might have been there earlier in the evening. Screw you, Arden. We wanted dessert. Okay, just kidding um is that all the spooky season updates god i Uh, hope so i think that's all we did i did go to the lakewood cemetery fall colors celebration my mom and i went you didn't go to that one it was very which is very fun i recommend it if you're in the area in october it's it's very fun they do the trolley tour you can see their maple trees that are like bright red um had a cookie had some cider it was fun did you paint pumpkins do they have that this year it was really cold and my mom and i both forgot to wear a hat so we um got cider and then while we were waiting for the trolley to come along we could have they had a really cute little craft that you could do where you made your own little um mosaic like mosaic leaf like they had like different leaf motifs and you could make a little mosaic which we kind of wanted to do but it was outside and very cold so um we did not do that we just got cider and we looked at the maple trees while we waited for the trolley we got immediately on the trolley and then afterwards we went we kind of walked through the chapel and then left because it was really cold yeah that's understandable but they also had music there they had like a little tent with some live music and um it was very fun lovely okay now we can actually talk about unsolved mysteries all right what episode are we on now uh we're on season seven i think it's 16 i think it is episode 16 and samantha goes first this week this is an interesting mystery for sure this is a i don't remember if they called it a paranormal or an unusual phenomena or what i I would i would call it a fraud but go on you don't say uh listeners we'll let you decide i think you should you should definitely google a side by side of this man's art and what he claims it is uh and see for yourself if you think he's legit i'm pissed you got this one to be honest <laughs> just in, in the in the spirit of full disclosure i was like oh samantha gets the art mystery or the art fraud paranormal things <laughs> psychic phenomenon um so we're talking about 46 year old brazilian artist luis gasparetto he claims to be a quote spirit channeler possessing amazing abilities that allow long deceased artists to create new works from beyond the grave 
interestingly, we talked about how over the summer, Samantha and I went and saw a um, paranormal art exhibit at the um, Minneapolis Institute of Art. And they had some examples there of people who claimed to channel artists from beyond the grave. So I felt like we were very well informed on this topic. Yes. And his is just as bad as some of the ones we saw. Yeah, it's interesting to me that artists, you know, like Claude Monet, yeah, dead in the ground. And his spirit, I assume, is up in heaven looking at water lilies and bales of hay. And then he goes, you know, I want to make one last painting. But also, I want it to be real bad. Someone weird choice, Monet. But all right, there's an expert later in this episode. I didn't write down like what his qualifications were, but he said, "Why would these very successful, famous artists want to make a cheap imitation <laughs> of their work from Beyond the Grave?" And honestly, I think cheap imitation is actually a little generous. Yeah, for this what we're seeing of- here. I don't know. This is sort of, has sort of a art sold in a tourist location by the sidewalk kind of vibe. Um, like what people who like demonstrate for you drawing with pastels really quick. And you're like, okay, that was really quick, but it was also like really bad. <laughs> it's, it's that. So bad. So... Robert Stack says, quote, as he whips color across the page, he seems to be a man possessed. Indeed, if his astounding assertions are true, his every gesture is directed by the spirits of these long dead masters. Mm-hmm. So some of the artists he claims to channel are Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Monet, Picasso, Rembrandt, and Renoir, among others. Van Gogh oh, just- is another one. Just all the biggies, you know? Yeah. 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 Just only people that are household names get in touch. (laughs) Van Gogh is featured quite a few times. Um, All gone now for decades or centuries, but believe it or not, Louise says that his drawings and paintings are nothing less than their recent work channeled through him. Mm -hmm. So at... (laughs) (laughs) As an allegedly gifted psychic, he claims... Um, oh, this is what I'm sorry. This is what Robert, I misread my notes. This is what Robert Stack says. Is he a gifted psychic, as he claims, or a flamboyant showman, as common sense would dictate? Yeah, I that's a good, that is a very good phrase. I'm gonna go with common sense. Yeah. So, Luis grew up in Sao Paulo, Brazil, which is Brazil's largest city. The culture there is laced with mysticism, and many consider psychic experiences part of everyday life. Louise's family is no exception. His mother has written 13 books and says that the uh, works were all channeled from the spirit world, her meaning her books. Um, one of his brothers channels pop musicians. Wish we could have heard that music. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Louise was just a boy when he first began to believe that he too possessed psychic abilities. At the age of 13, he was overwhelmed by stress, sleeplessness, and trouble at school. His mother thought he needed counseling and took him to see a woman who went by Madame Laise, one of the city's best-known clairvoyants. Yes, that's often what I do when people need help. 
yeah if you need counseling you go see a clairvoyant of course. i was like oh yes he did need counseling so he went to a psychic i was like <laughs> oh uh, okay so louise says that at first he was embarrassed because it was his first time seeing a clairvoyant but then as the session began he started to feel his body shaking from the inside he felt energy inside him and then something holding his throat when he tried to control himself the feelings got worse so he decided to quote just let it go okay he recalls feeling pain and tingling in his arms to me- madame laise it was a sign he would be able to channel writing uh this was similar to his mother who channeled writing through her books um, but quite unexpectedly he began to draw instead and henceforth he had found his calling he says that over the next three decades he channeled more than twenty thousand paintings by some 50 artists he says that he speaks to them both verbally and telepathically and he says that the head of the group of artists is italian painter i'm not going to pronounce this right do you know this modi gliani no i have no idea sorry oh it's an italian painter and i probably if I probably if I said that name right, you'd probably know who it was. So his claims. <laughs> I also love that all of these artists are like I don't know in heaven, like as a group, and they have elected a leader. <laughs> well, yeah, all famous artists once they pass over, they have like a salon. They they sit, they they discuss art and philosophical ideas, and then they elect someone on earth to make terrible <laughs> reproductions of their famous works. Uh, of course. Um, so, uh, Louise's claims have gone largely unchallenged in Brazil. Several doctors and researchers who have investigated him have stated that he is genuine, whatever that means. Um, and I, maybe he genuinely believes what he's doing is channeling. I don't know. Um, thanks to Brazilian psychic and artist Elise Duburgos. I'm really sorry, Elise. <laughs> His reputation has begun to spread around the world. Louise uh, founded and runs the Center of Spiritualistic Culture, which caters to, uh, quote, poor and disturbed people in Sao Paulo. Okay. Don't know what that means. Um, But the money he makes from his art goes directly to the center. He helps support himself and works as a psychotherapist in his center. Um, in January 1995, Unsolved Mysteries asked him to film one of his channeling sessions. He says that when he is invited to do a presentation of his abilities, he has to ask the spirits if they want to come through him because he cannot do it himself. If they say yes, he will accept the invitation. The show's invitation was apparently accepted because he uh, filmed himself uh, in New York City. It would be hilarious if he was just like, no, Monet's not in the mood today. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, this is That was literally a direct quote from Robert Stack, who said, apparently uh, the invitation was accepted. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so we see Luis working with such intensity that an assistant has to hold down the canvas. He is basically like wildly scribbling um he's kind of like hunched over the canvas at one point he covers his hands in paint and is like finger painting yeah i wrote that down monet painted with his fingers who knew not only and it's not like he's delicately dipping his fingers into the paint he has his entire hands are covered in paint and he's like rubbing them together and like squishing the paint and it's 
oh, it made me uncomfortable, to be honest. And then he's just like rubbing it all over the canvas. And this is how he comes up with his paintings, which apparently he does in a matter of minutes. So he'll just like whip them out like one after another. It looked yeah, exhausting. You can honest. tell that they're made in a matter of minutes. Um, so he holds his face in one arm, covering his eyes while he draws on the canvas with the other. He uses both pastel crayons and acrylic paints, and he says that during his sessions, he feels a, quote, sensation when the artists come through him and use his arms. Again, he says he just lets go and allows them to draw. He's not apparently doing any of this. Mm -hmm. So during the frenetic session, Louise completed six drawings and three paintings, most in less than five minutes. He, quote, moved easily between different artistic styles he says that he tries not to control anything or put any of his own thoughts or ideas into the drawings. He says that people mistakenly believe that when the artist takes over, he loses consciousness and they have complete control over him. Instead, he says that what actually is happening is that they are, quote, energetically influencing him and that he has learned to be, quote, passive. Uh-huh. During the 45 minutes the show was filming, <laughs> Luis says that he channeled works by seven artists. Uh, among them, the greatest of all time. Um, Robert Sachs says this is, quote, an impressive accomplishment. But is it proof that the great masters are hard at work in the afterlife? And this is where he says comparisons between the real life paintings and Louise's show that there is some resemblance. But art experts in the United States are hardly convinced. Again, we're being very generous. <laughs> his paintings look absolutely nothing. I draw your attention to his painting, his Renoir that they show us, which is like, what is this? It's a scribble. It's terrible. His version looks like a college kid after a night out drinking. <laughs> I mean, what is this hair? It's bizarre. It looks nothing like the one, the original. I mean, it's it's a new work, Samantha. Okay, not fair he's not going to draw the same thing from the afterlife they seem to be suggesting that he was recreating he, they kind of did but i don't think that's actually what he said oh fair enough uh they do show a side by side and regardless of whether is, it's a recreation of the bad. original work or not bad. the res there's no resemblance i guess in his his van gogh there's a little starry night swirl in the sky <laughs> Yeah, but that just means he's like looked at one Van Gogh painting. It's but it's like, not Starry Night. It's it's ugh. yeah, it's over a field. I it's pretty <laughs> shitty. It's I I sort I sort of feel like this guy could do better if he didn't spend five seconds on each one. I'm not saying there's like no talent there, but part of the showmanship of it is that he's trying to do them like super fast. So. Smearing his hands through the paint. Yeah. Yeah. That I was like, that is not what Monet did ever. I don't know what you're doing right now. Um, look, I respect the grift, honestly. Okay, so <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries Wiki has the exact quote from art critic Peter Clothier, who says that quote, the notion that any one of these famous artists, for example, Van Gogh, a man of extraordinary intensity and seriousness of purpose, would want to come back after death and produce third, fourth, or fifth-rate imitations of what they successfully did during their lives seems incredible. I mean, I, yeah, and again, that's kind of nice. That's like putting it nicely. 
Yeah. Um, art writer Hunter, I can't pronounce his last name, says that Louise seems to be possessed by some force. However, she theorizes that the, quote, force is his own subconscious playing back images that he has seen in art history books. I mean, that's also, this woman's like, yeah, maybe he believes it, but I don't. I sort of think the whole thing is a scam, but I a little bit respect that. I mean, I assume he's, I mean, is he, uh, is he selling these so you can watch him do it? And in five minutes, he can crank out a painting that he sells to you for God I mean, knows how much. Somehow he's funding his center through this. Yeah. So you, you might be closer to the truth. <laughs> um, You know, the line between art and scam is sometimes very thin. It's kind of an interesting dynamic. Um. I pulled up, a, uh, I'll throw in a recommendation for a book. It's a little out of date because it's over a decade old. But if you're interested in that sort of thing, the book, The $12 Million Stuff Shark, The Curious Economics of Contemporary Art is very I've been meaning interesting. to read that. It's a lot about how because art doesn't follow traditional economic theory because the price and value of it is entirely subjective how that works how um really like high like big art sales at this point are really just for money laundering um stuff like that is very interesting um i feel like the examples and stuff are gonna you know not be of today's market but it's it's a very interesting look at like how that all works anyway yeah i've been reading meaning to read that book i would recommend it i'll leave you with Robert's next parting words, which is, mm, mm. is Louise a window to the metaphysical side of art? <laughs> Can there possibly be any substance to his stunning claims? No matter what one may believe, even a skeptic has to admit that he puts on a great show. Okay, I'll go along with that. Yeah. Okay, so now we are on to a missing person. This is a sad case. This is... Uh, We're going to open on the men's club in Houston, Texas, which is described as an upscale adult night spot. The clientele is mostly male. The entertainment topless. (laughs) Okay. That's what they said. Is that on the side of the building? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, For uh, Robert Stack tells us for many of us, it is tempting to make assumptions about the type of women who dance and work here, but don't be deceived. Um, You know, this is, this is kind of dated. This is a taking little moment to remind you that, that sex workers and even just people who work in the adult industry are in fact people. So don't be such judgmental old biddies. <laughs> this is the case of Tara Beckenridge who waited tables at the men's club from 1989 to 1992. Um, so she didn't dance there. She was just a server, but um, I don't know, whatever. I Unsolved Mystery doesn't want you to, to judge her as a harlot. She was a nice girl, Samantha. She was waiting tables. I don't know. Yeah, she was making good money. I, if anything, I'm jealous. Um, she grew up in Del Rio, Texas, of a population of about thirty four thousand at the time. She graduated high school in 1987 and moved to Houston to, to sorry. She moved to Houston to pursue a career in photography and worked as a waitress to support herself. Um, and it was eventually working at the men's club because you know, hey, hey, there's great tips. Um. And her mom wants you to know that she was just there for the money. And I was kind of like, yeah, so is everybody. (laughs) (laughs) You think there's women working at the men's club? The love of being topless. (laughs) You think there's women working at the men's club that aren't there for the money? 
just for the sheer sick thrill. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of, though this is later, in Independence Day, Will Smith's girlfriend, is it's like scandalous that she's a stripper and they're like, well, she's doing it because she has a kid. And it's like, yeah, everybody's doing it for money. Like, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? Guess what? This lady needed money. She also lived in a capitalist society. Okay, anyway. Um, sadly, in 1992, she vanished without a trace. Her family and the authorities believe Tara was murdered. The top suspect, guess what, is her boyfriend at the time, Wayne Hecker, who does talk to Unsolved Mysteries, and you will not like him. <laughs> they originally met. It's in- never a good idea. No. I, I, the, the hubris, the audacity <laughs> of men who are clearly, okay, uh, clearly slash allegedly guilty. <laughs> um because you know he hasn't been convicted of anything but he definitely is like i can talk my way out of this and i'm here to tell you wayne you did no such thing (laughs) um he met tara in 1989 um and even though tara did not actually dance at the men's club he did not approve of the job but guess what wayne was not employed so he didn't really (laughs) get a lot of say in the matter this trophy crazy tara is paying his bills he's living he's just a mooch but he wants her to have a more respectable career where she'll make less money the money that he needs to spend on his own stuff i hate it anyway yeah he didn't approve but guess what he didn't get a he didn't get a lot of say in the matter tara's mother describes their relationship as quote rocky at best which is Oh, Rocky, to say the least. Nah, not good. Not good. Um, Tara frequently considered moving out of the place that she shared with Wayne and just you know, leaving him to his own devices, which she clearly deserved. But in the July of 92, she went home to visit her parents. Her mom, looking back, was concerned that she was unhappy, but didn't really ask a lot of questions about it because it didn't seem like her business. So she doesn't know what her daughter, what problems her daughter was facing at the time. Soon she was back in Houston and back to work. Um, the night that we're referring to, it was a slow night and Tara volunteered to go home early, which was unlike her. Cause usually she was one of the, the last waitresses to leave. She would stay and try to make as much money as possible. Um, we know for her like last known whereabouts that Tara changed into her regular clothes and punched out of the club at 1229 AM. She is seen with a really amazing pink duffel bag, at least in the reenactment. She did not respond to the doorman saying goodbye, which was also unusual. I don't know that anyone would make anything of that if that's not the night that she disappeared, but she seemed distracted, I guess. Yeah. Um, now we hear from a guy that's a Sergeant Brad, and he has a mustache, and I called that on his face and on the case. <laughs> that may be my favorite one yet. Which I can't believe I've never used before, but anyway. <laughs> so um, a bouncer ex- escorted her to her vehicle, carried her bag, watched her get into the car, and told her to drive safe. Um, I have learned from Twitter that if you are a stripper, you have to pay a bouncer to walk you to your car. What? Yeah, that's you have to tip out several people at the end of the night. You have to tip out the DJ. You might have to tip out the doorman. You have to pay fees to the house. You have to pay a cut of what you made to wherever you're working. And you also have to tip the bouncer for walking you to your car for your own safety because men cannot be trusted. Uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful I'm system. Flabbergasted. 
It's a wonderful system. Anyway, so the bouncer does remember walking her to her car. He remembers her getting into her car he and driving. Remembers- uh, five she slipped <laughs> yeah she remembered he remembers well but, but that shows you why he would remember i guess is why i bring it up and that he did what and because he's you know in charge of the safety of the women that work there he did like watch her car leave and he did not see anyone following her at that time um but where was this loser wayne he says <laughs> that he was in a pool hall 15 minutes away he's spending called- his girlfriend's money yeah <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. he's a real winner. So he had called Tara at work earlier in that evening, but hadn't spoken to her. I'm sure they were like, dude, she's actually has a job. Like, oh, he hadn't. Is this his account that he hadn't spoken to her? No, I think the club did confirm that. that he uh, had I was called... trying to think of why she was so like upset and distracted. Like if they had gotten into a fight on the phone or something. Right. I think the club. You might be right, but I think the club did confirm that he had called, but that she was busy, and they were like, you know, go away, Wayne. Um, So he says he got home at five in the morning. From the pool hall? Yes. When is bar close at the the pool hall? Yeah, I don't know when bars close in Houston. That's quite late. Anyway, he... um, he got home at five and was surprised that she wasn't there. I mean, she did leave work early, but usually I think she left around two. So, you know, he would expect her to be home way before five. She wasn't there. So he went to find her, supposedly. And at 7 a.m., he found her car abandoned on the side of the freeway. Neither the car alarm nor the flashers were on. The car was locked and there he could see the can of mace she always carried visible inside the car. So when she left the vehicle, she didn't take that with her, which seems odd. Um, according to empl- <laughs> now, okay, according to employees at the pool hall, Wayne left at twelve thirty and wasn't seen again until one forty-five. Hmm. <laughs> the place where Tara's car was found is directly in between the men's club and the pool hall. Wait, what time did she leave work again? So she leaves work at twelve. She punches out at twelve twenty-nine. And what time did he leave the pool hall? 12.30. Okay. Now, Interesting. there isn't, as far as this episode lets us know, a way he would have known that. But I'm wondering if somehow someone tipped him off. Because well, it's yeah. ex- I mean, they could have exactly. been like, they could have been walking into the pool hall and been like, hey, I saw your girlfriend leave work. Right. Also, or these- did she stop by the pool hall? Right. Because the pool hall is only 15 minutes away. Or maybe or did he call again and they were like, she's gone. Like she left already. Or maybe he paid the bouncer or the doorman or someone to tell him Ooh, when she left. Because he's like, you know, possessive and yeah. keeping an eye on her. He often seems like it. She he picked her up from work sometimes, too. Um, okay. or at least he did in one of the reenactments. Um, I don't know. Anyway, so Unsolved Mysteries asks Wayne directly to respond to the accusation that he was involved. And then he gives a very unsatisfying, rambling explanation that he doesn't know owe anyone an explanation except the Lord. And then um... he goes <laughs> and then he goes on about how he's waiting to hear for God from an answer, and until then he doesn't think anyone will be satisfied. Wayne if you didn't do it, just say you didn't do it. What is <laughs> that's this? A, that's a weird answer that makes you sound guilty. Yes. 
I mean, it's allegedly not suspicious. Or whatever we've said in the past. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly not mysterious. Yeah, allegedly not mis- No, this is extremely mis- this is extremely suspicious, Wayne. Okay. Um, but because there was no actual evidence of fall play, there's just Tara's car, she's listed as a missing person. The police did uncover a series of love notes suggesting there was another man in Tara's life. One note even mentions marriage. But when they look into it, they find out that this was an admirer from the club who often left her large tips. So this is just a guy who comes into the gentleman's club and is fixated on Tara. Oh, I'm sure you get that. Yeah, she would get this all the time, I'm sure. Yeah. I, you know, why she kept these notes, I don't know. Maybe they were, uh, who knows. Um, but it, from talking to people at the club, it was clear that she had rejected his advances. And there was nothing threatening in the notes. It was just like. I love you. There was one that was like, I can't wait till we get married. Stuff like that. But it wasn't, um, there wasn't a point where he said like, if I can't have you, no one can or any of that kind of bullshit. Um, however, Tara's family points out that Wayne did know about this guy and wasn't super happy about it. And then at one point, Wayne says, I loved the woman to death, which is not a great choice of words, Wayne. Mm. Okay, unfortunately, this is the end. Unfortunately, there is no update, and Wayne died in October 2005. So I hope we find out what happened to Tara, but it seems more and more unlikely, which is very sad. Uh, not good. Not great. Okay, now you get a surprisingly charming war story. This, I cried. This <laughs> Is this I... real? This sounds made up as fuck. Apparently, it was real enough to be featured in a Ronald Reagan's speech. Okay, but that only makes me more suspicious, and you know it. I don't know. Well, yes, but Fritz <laughs> is in the episode. Yeah, that's just true. I believe Fritz. Telling his own story. So, I, yeah, this made me cry. He, and he has a mustache I called the true German. I <laughs> love it. Um, okay, so this is uh, Lost Love, and it's the Friends of Fritz Finken. Uh, so this story is one of the most, quote, remarkable tales to ever come out of World War II. Remarkable for the fact that it involves no fighting or bloodshed. In January 1973, a Reader's Digest magazine published the account titled Truce in the Forest. And in 1985, it was a focal point of a speech given by then-President Ronald Reagan. Now, Fritz Winken, the German man at the center of the story, hopes to find three unknown American soldiers and write the closing chapter of this amazing saga. So this is the story. In December 1944, the battered German army launched its last great offensive along an 85-mile front in Belgium's Ardennes Forest. It's a great day for me in pronunciations. The infamous Battle of the Bulge. Nearly 16,000 American soldiers would lose their lives, and another 60,000 would be wounded or captured. It was the costliest battle the United States would uh, wage in any war. Within earshot of the fighting, on the edges of the forest, near the German-Belgian border, stood a small isolated hunting cabin. There, Fritz, who was then 12 years old, lived with his mother, Elizabeth. His father, Hubert, had moved his family from their hometown, um, which is in a city I can't pronounce in Germany, to this cabin in October 1944 for safekeeping. Their home um, and Hubert's bakery had been damaged the previous April by Allied bombing. 
life in the forest was very difficult uh it was oh it was a shack it was like a they call it a cabin but it was literally a one-room shack um while hubert served as a civilian baker for the german army 20 miles away fritz and elizabeth struggled to put food on the table Fritz says that Hubert thought that the war would be over by Christmas. A lot of people thought that, but it was not to be. Uh, Their stay in the cabin was much longer than they anticipated. And on Christmas Eve, 1944, there was an air of sadness and uncertainty. Um, Hubert had still not returned, and his family was resigned to the fact that they would be spending the holiday without him. Elizabeth tried to comfort Fritz, saying that Hubert would have come home from Christmas if he was able to do so. She figured he was held up with work and the weather, and she tried to make the evening as festive as possible. She scraped together a Christmas meal of a few potatoes and a, quote, scrawny pet rooster. (laughs) The rooster apparently was named Herman and had been making too much noise uh, for them to feel safe, so they killed him and ate him for Christmas. (laughs) Sorry, Herman. So, snitches uh, get stitches. Snitches <laughs> get stitches, Herman. Uh, so as Elizabeth made dinner, there was a knock at the front door. Fritz believed that it was Hubert, but Elizabeth knew better and blew out the candles uh, and went to the door. Uh, Fritz was beside her, and when she opened the door, they discovered three American soldiers outside. They tried to talk to Elizabeth, but she and Fritz did not speak English. Um, One of the soldiers had clearly been shot in the leg, and they were all suffering from frostbite. They asked if they could come inside, and she was hesitant but eventually agreed, using hand motions to invite them in. I mean, she's risking her own life to do this. Right! To to harbor the enemy. Yes. Robert Stack tells us that Elizabeth knew full well that harboring the enemy was punishable by death, but seeing the state of the soldiers were in, uh, she was more than willing to take the risk. This tells me Christmas, you know. This tells me she's not very committed to the Nazi cause, so I I appreciate that. Right. Um, so the injured soldier had been shot in the leg and had lost a great deal of blood. She had the others place him in a bed and did her best to make him comfortable. She tore her bed sheets to make bandages for him. One of the soldiers asked Elizabeth if she spoke French, and fortunately she did, so they were able to communicate through French. Um, she was He was able to explain to her that they had lost their unit, and for the past two days and nights they had been wandering through the forest, hiding from Germans. They had all but given up hope when they spotted smoke rising from the cabin. Fritz says that- It was, it was Herman! And he lit the way! <laughs> the smoke of Herman cooking! Oh, Herman, your legacy lives on. Yeah, thank you for your sacrifice, Herman. <laughs> Fritz says that Elizabeth was um, uh, basically went into mom mode. She worried for the soldiers, so especially, cute! <laughs> especially, ah! especially the wounded one. And she did all everything she could uh, with what the, the limited means she had available. Um, she had Fritz add potatoes, greens, and water to the meal to, and make it a soup for them and the soldiers. He recalls that the soldiers were very nice. Um, it was well, they, like... They better fucking be. <laughs> Jesus. Here they are risking their lives to help them. I get the sense that they were all quite young because he kind of describes them as being like the big boys from the neighborhood. Like the older kids, basically. They're, they're probably like 18. Right. Right. Right, yeah, I'm sure. Elizabeth made them feel right at home and they began to relax in anticipation of an unexpected Christmas dinner. 
then of there her came, of herman of poor herman r.i.p herman uh you died for the greater good uh so then came another knock at the door and i'm sure you could, i just uh, watching this you could just imagine how like their blood was like just oh run cold. shit right uh, not great. So Fritz and Elizabeth thought that it must be more Americans. Fritz went and opened th- went and opened the door, but to their surprise, there were four German soldiers outside. Fucking uh- Nazi! What are the odds of this? <laughs> I know. It doesn't sound like anyone has stumbled upon this this shack this in entire, months entire time. But then they're cooking old Herman, <laughs> and soldiers from both sides are just coming out of the forest like, oh, I, I heard know. you were cooking an old rooster. <laughs> so Fritz was petrified with fear. Um, they said that they had, so these soldiers said that they had also lost their unit and asked if they could come inside and warm up for a little while. Elizabeth, in yeah. an <laughs> act of bravery I can not even fathom, <sighs> told them that not only would they be allowed to come inside and warm up, they would get a nice dinner, but only if they accepted the guests who were already inside. She then said to them, this is Christmas night. There will be no shooting around here. You can put your arms, their guns, in the wooden shed over there. Come inside. We'll have a nice Christmas. This can you imagine the balls of steel it would take to say I this? I, I'm sure this woman has passed on long ago, but we need her negotiating every peace treaty. We need her like heading up the UN. Like this is, I would have been like, uh, no. And then tried to get the other soldiers to run out in time, which I'm sure would not have worked. No. And instead she's like, I'm going to ne- negotiate the peace treaty of the century by getting all of these people to have rooster soup together. <laughs> incredible yeah incredible yeah it's really it's an amazing feat only a mom could pull off so they indeed agreed to put their weapons in the shed meanwhile elizabeth went inside turned to the americans who by then noticed that there were germans coming and told them to turn their weapons in as well and she like gathered up all their guns because they had heard this exchange and they had all sure. grabbed their weapons and were like holy shit this is not going the way we want and then she's to. just like uh, 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 and she goes and like, gets gathers up all their guns she's like give those to me and take them, takes them all um and then she so the germans come in and she calmly tells fritz to get more potatoes and water as they quote had more mouths to feed oh wait, also i don't think these people have that much food so this is like a good portion of their rations i'm sure well they're used to feeding they were struggling to feed themselves and there was two of them and (laughs) suddenly they're feeding a whole battalion or whatever it was like eight people who by the way i am a big fan of unsolved mysteries war reenactments because the soldiers they cast are so hot they always are remember my true love duncan yes and this is like eight of them all these dudes are so hot (laughs) Clearly, Unsolved Mysteries thinks that if you were a soldier in World War II, you were like a dashing model. Yeah. Like when you got when the war was over, you went back to your career modeling underwear. Like I, mean, I don't know great. where they get this image, but it's very hilarious. <laughs> it's great. You should definitely watch this episode. <laughs> um, um, so for a minute or two, there was apparently some tension in the room, but oh, then. No shit. <laughs> 
Then, according to Fritz, the warmth and good smells began to take the edge off. There was a sense of hospitality in the room. The Germans produced a bottle of wine and a loaf of bread. The Americans shared their cigarettes, and they discovered that one of the German soldiers spoke English. He told them that he was a medical student before the war, and he went over to the wounded American soldier um, and began to, like, tend to him. Um, he determined that while he had been shot and lost a lot of blood, as long as they didn't... he that the um the cold had kept the infection at bay and the entire night he would go over and like periodically tend to the wounded man um they also had a first aid kit which helped so they applied a clean dressing to the wound um i think this shows that like these 18 year olds they're not really invested on this and on either side right like these are other people's wars that they've been forced to go fight they they really would rather be home with their families having dinner. They don't want to be doing this shit. And I feel like Unsolved Mysteries kind of underplays that these are Nazis. (laughs) By referring referring to them as German soldiers all the time. But I feel like it's like, okay, this woman is German. I don't know that she really would have had much choice but to help them. I'm sure they would have killed her if she hadn't helped them. But this is also just such a genius solution where everyone gets to live right so it's like should you feed nazis christmas dinner i mean preferably no but in this situation like i feel like it's sort of life or death yeah no definitely definitely i mean you should share your rooster soup if it means you and your son make it out alive absolutely and and she also saved the life of these three americans too which she really had no obligation to do that at all um absolutely yeah it was it's it's ingenious mothering on her part yep so we are told that that night hostilities ceased in at least one quarter of the forest as american and german soldiers sat down together to honor the christmas spirit elizabeth said grace however it was not a regular prayer it was something spontaneous she said quote let's all be thankful to the lord for being together tonight being peaceful in this terrible war for not killing me and my son (laughs) Let's, Lord, please keep us alive through this meal. Liz is spitballing, but I think I think that's the message underpinning the whole thing. She goes on to say, "Let's enjoy dinner, the little things that we have, and let's promise to be friendly to each other forever, if possible. <laughs> let's also pray for an end to this terrible war, so that we can all go home very soon." Fritz says that by the end of her prayer, all of the soldiers were crying. I mean. This is why I was like, what? Is this real? But it is. (laughs) He was surprised to see even the German sergeant in tears. Uh, But soon they started to eat and the tears disappeared. From then on, there was feelings of friendship that permeated the whole room. He says that it was wonderful and unforgettable. That's why we need this woman. Negotiating Seriously. Absolutely. So after dinner, the soldiers drifted outside one by one. Elizabeth and Fritz joined them, and as they gazed heavenward, each gave thanks in their own way. Uh, this really doesn't feel real. <laughs> I'm not sure if this actually happened, but that night, the men would, quote, sleep side by side under the same roof, the differences of war temporarily set aside. Fritz says that the soldiers were peaceful. One would never think that they were two different kinds of soldiers and that just one day before they would have shot each other. 
Fritz remembers that the spirit of brotherhood continued the next morning. The Germans helped construct a makeshift stretcher for the injured American and they even gave the other Americans directions to get back to their line. One of the Americans asked if it would be quicker to go um, through like some some direction which had been head- held by the Allies, but the Germans told them no because the Nazis had retaken that area. Um, this bit of information may have helped save the Americans' lives. They were like, oh no, you'll find the rest of our unit that way. And they'll definitely kill you. <laughs> right. So that same day, Ooh. Fritz and Elizabeth left with the Germans and were reunited with Hubert. Five months later, the war ended. Um, so, so it's Fritz on the show. Right. So in 1958, Fritz married. And in 1959, he immigrated to the United States. A few years later... Um, at the urging of American friends, he submitted the story to Reader's, Reader's Digest. A senior researcher for the publication tracked down um, Elizabeth. She and Hubert had remained there after the war, and she confirmed the amazing story. In 1963, Hubert passed away, and in 1966, Elizabeth passed away as well. Today, Fritz is an American citizen living in Honolulu. Like his father before him, he owns and operates a bakery called Fritz's European Bakery, which he opened in 1971. Um, but that special night in 1944 remains a defining moment in his life. He now hopes to find the soldiers who helped him learn the true meaning of Christmas. And this, by this, I mean the American soldiers are the ones. He was not interested in reuniting with the Nazis. He was not. Um, Fritz says that it showed him what his mother could do, and it showed him what one single human being can do to avoid bloodshed and bring about peace. It also showed him at a very early age that we are all alike no matter what uniform we wear. We have the same joys the same sorrows and the same problems he says that it was a very significant experience in his life he will never forget it and he feels i mean for real (laughs) this is like out of a storybook and he feels obligated to spread his mother's message that people should always be willing to help each other no matter the situation so unfortunately at this time fritz recalled only scant details about the american soldiers he believes that the man who spoke french was named jim he had dark hair and a stocky build and he studied banking in ohio the second soldier was named robin or possibly warren he was tall and slender with blonde hair the wounded soldier was named harry but they had nicknamed him herbie (laughs) he had dark hair and a slight build um two of the german soldiers were named uh, Heinz and Willie, and they were both six. <laughs> they were both sixteen. Oh my god! No wonder they didn't want to kill each other. So the German corporal was twenty three. So this is solved. He was a, he was a wise old man at twenty three. <laughs> this is solved. Um, I'm going to read the update off the Unsolved Mysteries wiki. Um, oh, there's the cutest picture in the world of them being reunited. I saw it. It is. Oh. Really cute. So this is solved. After the story re-aired in October 1995, a man named Eldridge Ward called the Telecenter. He is a volunteer chaplain at the Northampton Manor Nursing Home in Frederick, Maryland. He recognized Fritz's story as one often recounted by a 76-year-old resident named Ralph Henry Blake. Ralph, a retired bricklayer from Frederick, had moved to the nursing home a year earlier due to heart problems. Unsolved Mysteries looked into Ralph's background and learned that in 1944, he had been a sergeant serving with the 121st Infantry 8th Division of the U.S. Army in Belgium. Along with Eldridge, Ralph had also told the story several times to his family. 
Fritz immediately phoned Ralph, and he confirmed that he was one of the soldiers who had celebrated Christmas with Fritz and Elizabeth. Fritz asked Ralph whether he remembered him from that night in, in the forest, and he said, oh yes, I remember you, you must be Fritz. He even still had the map and compass that one of the German soldiers gave him. Fritz was very excited that Ralph had been found, and he could hardly wait to meet him. Mm. On January 19, 1996, Fritz flew to Maryland to meet Ralph. The two were joyfully reunited at Ralph's nursing home. Fritz says that he just had to look in his eyes and he knew it was him. Ralph recognized him as well, even though they had changed so much over the years. Fritz said that it was a great experience to be able to see him again. He was especially happy when Ralph told him, quote, your mother saved my life. He was glad that her courage had not been forgotten. Ralph says that he never thought he would ever see Fritz again when he left Germany. He says that the day of the reunion was a special one for him. Coincidentally, it took place just a day after another exciting event, Ralph's 50th wedding anniversary. To cap the joyous celebration, his daughter-in-law fixed the same meal Elizabeth had served some 52 years ago, a hearty bowl of chicken soup. Stop! What? (laughs) Oh my god! I know! I hope it was a scrawny rooster. (laughs) Fritz says that that the reunion was the high point of his life and a fulfillment of a lifelong dream. It was something he had given up all hope hope of ever experiencing. He and Ralph were proof that true friendship and brotherhood can endure time, distance, and the ravages of war. This unsolved mystery is wiki is like a (laughs) storybook. Who wrote this? Uh, Fritz was also later reunited with one of the other American soldiers. It is not known if any of the German soldiers were located. However, it was noted that the German army had a high casualty rate in the final months of the war, leading Fritz to believe that they may have died in battle. Uh, In May uh, May 1999, Ralph passed away at the age of 79. On December 8th, 2001, Fritz passed away at the age of 69. Hmm. You know, it seemed like Fritz had a very good life after the war. Um, his bakery, the picture of him in his bakery, I was like, this man makes some good baked goods. I want to go to this bakery. I bet it's an amazing little place. Yeah. Just living in Honolulu, carrying on your dad's business. I, yeah. yeah. Seems like a good life. Part of you, Fritz. <sighs> He's just like story. such a German stereotype. With his mustache <laughs> and just like his very serious way of talking i don't know it's just so adorable it's a very sweet story and it's apparently true which i uh, i kind of can't believe it but yeah i, I did cry uh i love the reenactment those soldiers were super hot <laughs> the whole thing was amazing herman sacrificed his life but he was remembered 52 years later in another <laughs> bowl of soup amazing okay i have a fraud for y'all Oh, another uh, one. Two, two yeah. in one episode. I'm not sure they called the other one a fraud, but um, uh, a con artist at a church? Say it ain't so. <laughs> this is the case of Carlos Garcia and the Holy Family Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, at least at the time, the church served a tight-knit Hispanic community. Carlos joined their ranks in 1985. We hear from Iris, a council member for the church, about how honest he seemed and how very invested he was in the Mexican community there. He was able to earn people's trust very quickly. Um, He spent a lot of time at the church. He really dedicated himself to getting to know people and being involved in events and stuff like that. By 1988, Carlos was voted president and treasurer of the local pastoral council, which oversaw the church budget. No one suspected that he would end up stealing $2 million from the church and his fellow parishioners. 
He used this prestigious position at the church to attract clients to his illegitimate tax preparation business. Uh, for example, we hear from one couple that over the course of years, he built them out of $13,000, claiming that it needed to go to the IRS. Um, this is a very evil scam because the people at this church really did not have money to spare. And due yeah. to the language barrier and many of them being recent immigrants, they had very little knowledge of how American tax law worked. And they trusted Carlos. They put their faith in Carlos to help them prepare their taxes and i think in this case he had already helped them like with their immigration cards and getting citizens like he earned their right. trust from doing these other legitimate things and so then when they were like oh but how do we pay our taxes carlos was like don't worry i'll help you um and i feel like in the 80s you know how conservative people always complain that you have to like press one for english or what you know like right. i i don't think that in the 80s many materials were as readily available in spanish i don't think sure. that there was a lot of information in spanish to help people figure out how, and, and taxes are purposely needlessly complicated like right there's no the irs knows what you owe there's no reason you have to like figure it out and guess and send it in and then them go like uh, uh they already know they could just send you a bill but then that would wreck this like whole economy we have with tax preparation anyway uh carlos throw in a language barrier and it's just an environment yes. is rife for people to be taken advantage so of he, um so it didn't occur to people that carlos was being dishonest because they knew him through the church and he did help them previously he established trust with them and i this is just very evil um but that was just one part of his scam through his work at the church, he had access to people's personal information, and he used that to obtain phony credit cards and other people's names, and also the names of their deceased relatives, and also open fraudulent bank accounts. Um, back when things were on paper, it was pretty easy to just fill out forms, um, get credit cards, whatever, and nobody is going, hey, you're not so-and-so, right? Right. We hear from a special agent, Thomas, at this point, who has a very pale mustache I called the baked potato. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a little unsettling. Okay, so um, Carlos was also something of a sweetheart swindler. He dated a woman Unsolved Mysteries called Anna, though that was not her real name, for six years. In this time, he learned that Anna's mother had a good amount of money, and he encouraged her to invest it with his credit union. However, without her knowledge, Carlos added himself as a co-signer on the account and quickly withdrew $25,000. Oh, my God. Um, the gig was up when someone at the church contacted the authorities. They had given Carlos cash for three straight years to pay their taxes, only eventually to hear from the IRS that there was no record of these payments. So they had been hiring carlos to prepare their taxes they had given carlos money to pay their taxes and then eventually hear from the irs that they're like hey why haven't you been paying your taxes so um this person was smart enough to go to the authorities and not go straight to carlos right so that means the the fbi has this person call carlos while they're listening on the line um, and he, of course, Carlos claimed it was a big misunderstanding and that he would straighten it out. But the person got Carlos to say, like, yes, I prepared the paperwork. And yes, I, you know, I paid your taxes and don't worry about it. So that person was like off the hook. Right. 
Um, at this point, we're hearing from a special agent, C.A. Barg, and his mustache is called I Bore You because <laughs> it's just a boring cop mustache. Anyway, um, af- because of this evidence from this one witness, he was arrested a few days later and posted bail. Of course, he quickly left for Virginia Beach and vanished. Only after he left did the FBI figure out his real name, which was Fernando Zapicado. Uh, he was originally from Argentina, not Mexico, as he had claimed, which I feel like is just an extra slight to all the people at this church. <laughs> oh <laughs> because he's, he's definitely like ingratiated himself as one of them and yeah. it was all, it was all a big lie. Um, so it turns out that he was a career con this, uh, you know, once they figured out, oh, this is actually Fernando. This guy was a career con artist. He had been working up and down the East Coast for quite a while and he was known to use at least 17 aliases uh, at the very end we hear from a nun that tells us that the loss of trust was actually worse than the loss of money but then i was like but did you lose any money nun it's kind of is it worse though is that worse? i do not think that this family had thirteen thousand dollars to lose and then they still hadn't even paid their taxes so they had to pay their taxes on top of that um okay so fernando was on the run for a while but thanks to a viewer's tip he was tracked down to miami where he was working in a convenience store he pled guilty to several counts served two years and has since been released i mean i don't know what a fair punishment for this is but i do feel like this is a very insidious he's just preying on people that have so little what a fucking bastard Oh, I hate it. Anyway, that's the end of the episode. We got to rate it now. All right. So our first category is mysteriousness. I don't know that it's that mysterious. You know, it's really not. I don't think the art thing is real, but it was an interesting segment. I appreciate it as a segment. I don't think that it's a real thing, but I like it when they do those more wacky ones. Yeah, Um, uh, let's see. Oh, we don't know what happened to Tara. That is mysterious, though. I think we sort of I mean, know what happened. We have a hunch on. what happened to Tara. Uh, so, I'm going to say it's allegedly not mysterious again. Like, yeah, that is allegedly not mysterious. Uh, your Christmas story is just the sweetest possibly made-up story I've ever heard. <laughs> and then we have this con artist story. So I'm going to say actually thumbs down on mysterious. Other than Tara, not very mysterious. Agreed. I'm going to give a big thumbs up, however, for reenactments. Oh, so good. Actually, I, okay, first of all, you get the Gentleman's Club reenactments, which are mwah, mwah, chef's kiss. I loved them. They're so cheesy and over the top, just like women with gigantic blonde hair, just like, because they can't show any nudity, obviously. So it's a lot of like right. legs and high heels and women just like, Woo! <laughs> I don't know. It's great. It's great. I loved it. Um, obviously, the war, lost love thing, those reenactments are like, that should just be a movie. I can't believe that hasn't been made into a movie yet. Um, what else? I mean, just going off of the lost love reenactments alone, I give it a thumbs up. I thought it was great. Samantha's like hottest soldiers we've seen yet. Thumbs up. I mean, even Definitely. the. Well, I guess that's not a reenactment him making the art that was actually just a thing that supposedly happened anyway so thumbs up <laughs> thumbs, thumbs up. up fashion um fine i don't know yeah. the fashion lately has not been like outstanding it's just it's because i don't think we're in the 80s anymore and it's become a little more subdued and there's less like i don't know hot pink puff paint shirts and cool stuff like that really a shame yeah so 
I, there was a cool pink duffel bag. I, there's some like nightlife fashion. I don't know. There's like war, the soldier costume. Who cares? No, sideways, I guess. Robert Stack, uh, I thought he had some really good lines in this yeah. movie, particularly in the art one and the lost love. Um, he gets to wax poetic, but he also gets to be kind of snide. Right. Which you is see honestly two... a great place for Robert Stack to be. You're going to see two sides of Stack, and I like both of them. Thumbs up. Yeah. Um, How are we going to rate this? I honestly really liked this episode. I, think this is good. I love the lost love. It might be my favorite lost love yet. Um... I feel like this is a solid four. Yeah, I agree. Liked it a lot. Um, I you know, God, I four wish mysteries. There was an unnecessary update, but we still got four oh, mysteries, so I'm not yeah. mad at it. Um, I liked it. I uh, justice for Tara. That one's really sad, but that's the only sad spot, also. So that's great. Right. Um. Yeah. No, I like this one a lot. Like good, it. real good. Okay, are we right. doing recommendations this week? I don't have a recommendation. If you have one, I'll hand it over to you. I have nothing. Okay. Well, we did talk a lot about spooky season stuff, so that could all count. I'm going to throw in a recommendation for The Midnight Club on Netflix, um, which is like the TV show I've been waiting for for like, I don't know, 30 years. It is an adaptation of a Christopher Pike book, which if you don't know, you know, sorry to your youth, but back when there were not that many YA titles, like it was kind of a neglected book genre. Mm -hmm. um there was this guy whose name was not christopher pike because that's a star trek character that he used as a pen name but there was some dude who wrote these mysterious weird ass thrillers um that had the most amazing covers of like hot blonde girls driving skeletons in their cars and like hands popping out of graves and all sorts of ridiculous things. And they had the weirdest ass plots. And I fucking loved, I cannot tell you how much I loved these books. I ate them up. I read every single one I could get my hands on multiple times. I just loved them. There was time travel. There was weird revenge murders. There was serial killers. There was, it turns out the sexy teenagers are actually lizard people. That happened (laughs) multiple times, I'll have you know. But one of his most beloved books was called The Midnight Club. And it was about sexy teenagers that all had, they all, all of them were about sexy teenagers. But in The Midnight Club, it was about sexy teenagers who all had terminal illnesses and were at this um, remote hospice that was just for sexy dying teenagers. And they would meet every night at midnight to tell each other short stories for some reason. So it was sort of a stories within a book format. It was just very extremely charming. And, you know, then most of them died and it was all very, very tragic for your like preteen heart to cry your eyes out. Right. And they um, finally, after years and years and years of me praying every day for some Christopher (laughs) Pike content, we finally get this show from Mike Flanagan, who did Midnight Mass, which I've talked about how much I love. He did The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor. He got the whatevers to do this show. Um, So it's the format of, yeah, the teenagers go to the hospice, which I I swear it's because of reading this book and not knowing how that word is pronounced, but I always want to say hospice. 
Sorry. Like uh, pumpkin spice? Is like, yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> spice. Just from seeing it written down and not hearing it, you know? Fair enough. Fair enough. I was like 12. Give me a break. Anyway. But it's still a problem that I have to this day. And I blame the Midnight Club. Um, so they're all at the hospice. And they're meeting and they're telling stories. Except that in the show, those stories are like other Christopher Pike books. Oh. Oh, my God. Hook That's it fun. to my veins. <laughs> I loved it so much. It's like those stories, but elevate. Like, it couldn't have been treated better. Um, I had such a good time. It has a lot of the, the cast from Midnight Mass in it. It's very silly, but it's so enjoyable. My note is, I have no idea what this experience is like if you did not read those books. <laughs> I bet it's confusing and weird. Um, I don't really know. I can't. I can't imagine my life without reading those those books in my formative <laughs> years. So I have no idea. Um, but goddamn, I loved it. It takes place in the nineties. The music is so good. The outfits are so good. Ugh, ugh. I loved it. Five yeah. out of five. Robert Stacks. <laughs> Tens across the board. Love you, Midnight Club. We better get a second season. If we don't, I am going to be so fucking pissed. Netflix, are you listening? That is not. We it ends on kind of a cliffhanger. If okay. you do not renew it, I will be violently angry. Also, maybe if there's enough interest in this, we can finally get the movie of the Christopher Pike book, Season of Passage, that I've always wanted. Because it's about space vampires. Nice. From Mars. Well, where else would they be from? Yeah, exactly. And I, I God, I love, I read that book, I don't know, 10 times probably. And every day I wake up and I'm like, are they making a season of Passage movie yet? <laughs> no? Okay. Where are my space vampires? <laughs> uh, so if anybody else watched that show and you want to talk about it with me and the Facebook group... Love to love to hear from you Good from touch. the other. I briefly years ago, upon first moving here, was running a Christopher Pike book club, where we were meeting to read Christopher Pike books. And the problem with that book, I mean, I made pins like it was a whole thing. The problem with that book club is those books are terrible. <laughs> so as much as you might have loved them when you were like, you know, eleven, right. They're not really going to hold up when you're like almost 40. Yeah. It was kind of painful. But this way you can enjoy them again without that experience of going, oh, my God, this is awful. And <laughs> why does this guy talk about scuba diving so much? Why is this book mostly about how to scuba dive? I'm so confused. <laughs> um, yeah, that's all. That's Very all. Very nice. Very nice. Okay, so everyone, first of all, you need to download the Repod app. Yes. I'm slightly disappointed in the five that you guys are not isolating sound clips from our episodes, which is something you can do on that app, and I think would be very funny. <laughs> so you need to download the app, because also, it was the only business with the integ integrity, decency, honesty, whatever, to give us money. Absolutely. We appreciate it oh so much. Support them, because they support us exactly um so we have a patreon this month we are discussing the absolute worst episode of bones as Hopefully rated it comes out this month i've yet to okay. edit it <laughs> so you either hear that on halloween or on november 1st 
that's coming in under the wire. But we were discussing what, according to IMDb number ratings, is the worst episode of Bones. And guess what? It is pretty bad. It is extremely bad. So look forward to that. And then um, next month, we will be talking about the new episodes of the reboot. Yes, so yes. give us a dollar for that. And then we have, I look, are we going to keep doing Twitter now? I don't know, but we have a Twitter. And I actually posted some stuff on Instagram for once. So if you want to see some pictures from Spooky Train Day. Head over there. Head over there. That's perhaps it's you. Um, if you have a paranormal experience yourself, have you seen a ghost? Have you seen dark that's darker than the darkness? Have you had a word with new michelle you need to send over your spooky story to perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com and i'm just gonna say that was everything i think it's everything five stars oh my god you hook up with someone take their phone rate us five stars and you're going liz but i don't know this person's you know key code to their phone it's probably not hard it's probably like 6969 just like <laughs> guess okay see where the smudges are you know, line do a little detective work. Yes. Look at the phone, see where the, the fingerprints are, and try typing that in. And then, once you do that, don't look at their personal information, but do go to Apple Podcasts and write <laughs> this podcast five stars. This is my new scheme of how we're going to get more reviews. Five star reviews. I mean, we're yeah. not getting more listeners, so we got to figure something out. No, exactly. Out. Um, our, only hope, our only hope is people hooking up and using other people's phones without their knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Keep barking. Bye.